Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pantisocracy. And this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Pantisocracy. And before you all go running off to Google that, yes, it is a real word. It means a society in which all members are created equal. And that is one of the subjects that I'm interested in speaking to my guests today. And all of my guests are the kind of people that you would like to invite to the perfect dinner party. They are bright people doing interesting things. First up, we have a woman who is named after the Irish for fish, so it seems almost inevitable that the sea would play a big role in her life. She's a pro surfer, a scientist, an artist, and it's exhausting just to think about her. It's Miss Eastie Britton. Beside Eastie, we have a man who is both an actor and a writer, which means he's the worst person in the world to get into an argument with because he knows exactly what to say and how to say it. And he's also someone who owes me about 20 wigs and we'll get into that later. And please welcome Mark O'Halloran. Beside Mark is a scientist and secret ukulele player who has made it his life's mission to bring science to the masses and sort of break down the uh, barriers between your left-hand side of your brain or the right-hand side of your brain, or as he would say, there is no barrier. Uh, please welcome Shane Bergen. And over on the other side, please welcome the golden-voiced Maria Doyle Kennedy, who in a way doesn't need any introduction here, but of course, you know, she's not only a beautiful singer, but a very successful actress, uh, Maria Doyle Kennedy. And beside Maria is the man with whom she is currently having a torrid affair. Um, a torrid affair which has survived nearly 30 years of marriage and four children. He is the Kennedy in the Doyle Kennedy, Mr. Kieran Kennedy. Um, now, before we actually get started, um, I get to take the floor first um, in a thing that we're calling uh, the panty monologues, just because why wouldn't we call it that? Um, <laughs> where I get to sound off on anything that um, is bothering me at the moment or, or, or interesting me is probably a better word. And um, one of the things that I want to talk to um, the guests here today um, about is one of the things that I've always been interested in, and it is about expanding the definition of Irishness. And I think all of our guests can sort of see that because they're all well-traveled and sort of, I think, to, you know, if you travel, you get to look back at Ireland and you get a sort of a different view of Ireland and Irishness. Because, you see, when I was a teenager, I always felt that my Irishness was somehow suspect. You know, I didn't tick all of the boxes that you were meant to tick, you know, to be an Irish boy. I didn't like football. I didn't really get you to. You know, the idea of the trip to tip was absolutely terrifying to me. Um, <laughs> And on top of that, then, I did tick a whole lot of boxes that seemed somehow incompatible with Irishness at the time. You know, I was gay, I really liked Michael Jackson and Farrah Fawcett. And on top of that, of course, I had this weird accent. You know, I didn't even sound like an Irish boy was supposed to sound. I was always being asked accusingly, where are you from? And then when I would say I was from Mayo, I'd get the kind of look that you usually only get from a suspicious immigration officer. <laughs> um, <laughs> And even actually my very middle classness was somehow vaguely un-Irish. You know, I think um, Irishness was somehow working class always. Irishness was stone-picking farmers or hod-carrying laborers, you know, or tenement Dubliners, you know, not the son of a vet. 
middle classness was in a way vaguely Protestant. And I always felt an odd kinship with Irish Protestants whose Irishness was also continually suspect. I felt as if my Irishness was always being called into question. It seemed to me as if Irishness had a very strict, narrow definition, and that definition wasn't elastic enough to include people like me. And although that wasn't the only reason, it was certainly a good part of the reason why I ran out of Ireland at the first opportunity, because I wasn't sure at the time that there would ever really be a place for me here in Ireland. And it was only later when Ireland began to change that I started to think, well, you know, actually, maybe there would be a place for me here. But even then, I definitely thought that I would have to make that place. And in some ways, I would say that actually that, more than anything else, is what I have been about for the last 20 years or so. You're trying to make the concept of Irishness elastic enough to stretch around people like me. And I think over the last 20 years or so, the boundaries of Irishness have expanded to stretch around someone like me, you know, people who were previously outside. Certainly, I no longer feel that my Irishness is suspect. Now, that may perhaps be partly just down to the fact that I am older, I'm more confident in my own self and in my own Irishness. But I do think that Irishness has become more flexible or more malleable. It has sort of squeezed up on the pew and made room for a few more. And my first guest, Eastie Britton, is a scientist, surfer and explorer. She's a big wave surfer, a champion athlete who uses her passion to make a positive difference in the world. Eastie's from Donegal. She learned to surf when she was just four, growing up in Rossnaula, in one of Ireland's pioneer surfing families. Her grandparents bought back a few boards in the 1960s from California, and Eastie's dad and uncle taught themselves to surf. Eastie's love of the sea and surf has shaped her life. As a pro surfer, she's gone to the top of her sport, but she's also taken it out of the water and into social action and marine research. As a scientist, she's working with University College Galway, researching how the coast shapes our health and well-being. And with French filmmaker Marion Poiseau, she's created a network called Waves of Freedom, using surfing and the sea as a tool for positive social change. It was a surfing adventure in a remote region of Iran with Marion six years ago that started a journey of self-discovery which brought Eski across the world using surfing as a transformation tool. The seeds of hope are taking root in Iran through surfing. And surf history is in the making. And it's shaped by stories of pioneering water women and sportswomen who want to teach other girls how to surf. That was a clip from Eastkey's TEDx talk in Dublin a few years ago. Um, I love your name, by the way. Can I just say the Eastkey? It is. Have you ever met another Eastkey? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Because I haven't either. Mm. Um, <laughs> but even the whole of Eastkeywara and Eastkey Warriors comes to mind, and I think that's sort of a good tone for you. Um, I said I'm going to start with you, but actually, it's almost impossible to know where to bloody start with you because there's so much. Um, because you come from a family that in some ways almost pioneered surfing in this country. Um, how did you get into it or how did your family get into it? Yeah. It, it? Yeah, it's probably an unusual story looking back on it now, but growing up, it seemed like the most natural thing yeah. in the world. Like, as you said, I grew up in Rusnaila. It's one of the best 
beaches to learn how to surf and being born into surfing back then was mm-hmm. was a pretty odd thing so i guess it all started with my dad and his brothers being some of the first surfers to pioneered in the northwest of ireland in, in a way unintentionally perhaps my it was my grandmother who kind of kicked that off um, <laughs> and she was working for the irish tourism board and was traveling to the states in california and she has a hotel or had a hotel in Russian Island on the beach called the Sand House and uh, was promoting it and got to Malibu, saw the waves that they had there. And she reckoned that God, there's better waves out the front of the hotel. <laughs> 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 and it was the 60s. So surfing was kicking off really big. Yeah. It didn't exist in Ireland, really. And uh, she managed then to order up two surfboards that ended up back in her hotel and I think it was more as, you know, to put on the wall or for the tourists. Yeah. And she had no intention of turn, turning what she called then her sons, turning them into surf bums. Uh, <laughs> I think she but, was, so she brought them home as like you know, ornaments to hang on the, you know, the hotel wall. Like She, hotel she wasn't into starting off a surfing revolution, really. Um, but then how did your father or uncles or whatever then learn to surf? Well, I guess it's amazing these things land back into like Donegal and they've never seen anything like it before. And so why wouldn't you go and experiment with them? Um, but I grew up with all the stories of when, you know, surfing wasn't cool and there were no wetsuits. And I think the eldest brother had a dive suit. So they would mm. they'd, you know, flip a coin to see which who would get which half of the wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> so Rosnala became like a surfing home and you grew up surfing. Yeah, I did. So, and then when I grew up surfing, it was considered, I mean, totally crazy thing to do. There was no other kids surfing in the school. Mm -hmm. I'd surf year round through the winter time. It was just an obsession. And I think a lot of it has to do with growing up in Donegal and having that connection with something like the sea as a constant in my life. But it was like this constant playmate and also a way, a way out, a way to travel. And it was really grounding force in my life, like through Mm. my teenage years. And to have that, I really appreciate it now. But yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, I was considered a bit nuts. (laughs) Still am, I think. Well, because, you know, Mark or Helen there is from Ennis and I'm, you know, go down to Clare sometimes. And it's, it's absolutely madness that every single kid is, is surfing and, you know, it's it's so different from when we were kids going down to Ennis, you know. Well, the hinge is like, it's this yeah. weird, it's turned into this surf spot, whereas before it was just a small west of Ireland little holiday resort. And now it's it's incredibly cool. <laughs> and it's like California with, with very low temperatures. Well, the other thing about surfing is, though, <laughs> to me, is it always seems a bit, you know, it has a slightly hippie vibe about it. You're like sort of modern hippies in a way. Like, would you resist that description? Uh, no, I think, yeah, well, surfing attracts all kinds now, but yeah. yeah. There's but there's the, you know, the outdoorsy, you know, in yeah. touch with nature, flowing long hair vibe about it. <laughs> and, but, but, but you have, like, this is the sort of super, in- one of the super interesting things about you, which is uh, that you've sort of taken surfing and you're using it to make social change. And not just in Ireland, which is the really nutty part of it in a way, you know, in places like I- Iran. So how... How do you go from learning to surf in Rosnaula to teaching surfing to women in Iran? I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, that does sound nutty. Um, I think it came about because surfing is a mix of so many different things. It isn't just a sport. It's certainly not just about competition. And I was at that stage. I first went to Iran 2010, wanting to get under the skin of places when I was traveling a bit more. And but, but, but even that, so why did you go to Iran in 2010? Yeah, I mean, uh, not many people go, oh, I'm going to go to Iran and surf. You know, like... <laughs> Um, I think it was growing up. In a way, I see it now the influence of my family, my parents, and that sense of adventure always sort of pulling on me or to 
discover a, a whole new place mm. to be challenged. And then I guess the challenge for me was my own ignorance of not knowing anything about that part of the world. Mm. And then the chance of finding waves um, or not, like just, just taking that risk. And kind of, I've always been attracted to those things where it's it's unknown and uncertain. Yeah. yeah. But what, you're, you're like you're having coffee one day and, you know, you think, you know what I'll do tomorrow? I'll go to Iran and teach surfing to women who can't, you know, even wear a, a wetsuit in public, really. I guess the, the whole story evolved really organically by realizing just what a fascinating place it is. Mm. And there are these amazing sportswomen there doing incredible things who got really excited yeah. uh, about the possibility of surfing because it just wasn't, no one was surfing there at that time. And so it's gone, you fast forward five years and now Iran's just been declared like the 100th surfing nation of the world. <laughs> so be careful with where you travel with your big surfboard. <laughs> Um, the, the other, my partner in crime is Marion Poiseau, a, a filmmaker who kind of went, we went back in 2013 to document the story of the, the first female surfers, the first surfers of Iran, mm -hmm. who were these couple of other women who joined us, who were super courageous. Um, and they're the pioneers of surfing in Iran now, which yeah. is a great story. It changed my relationship with surfing. Yeah. See. And what it did, I guess I realized that surfing creates this space. It, is, it wasn't really about learning to surf. It yeah. was the space it created to bring these people together who just normally never would have Mm. chance to interact and then engage doing something that's so playful really yeah. um and just feels good now mark you have a connection to iran um yeah. oddly but actually do you have a connection to the sea in the same way i mean you are from Ennis. i'm from Ennis, but i never saw the seaside in iran i stayed i stayed in the center um and I, but i went there at the same time but the reason i went was kind of different it was because People used to tell me I looked like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the ex-president <laughs> yeah. of Iran, which I don't look unlike him, except he's, he's really short, but I'm really tall. Actually, when I went there, people went, I used to say to people, I've, I've come here because I look like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And they went, oh, yeah, you do, you do, you do. <laughs> so I was at home one day and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad came on the television saying there was no gays in Iran and they didn't have that sort of thing. And I just got enraged, like as if I was watching myself on the television, <laughs> denouncing the gays. So I thought... Fuck that! I'm going to go and visit Iran. I'm going to find the gays. Yeah, um, on my holidays. And you did. And I did. I did. I I went there and I kind of I hung around for about six weeks and wandered about. And I was propositioned a lot because I don't know. I think they might have fetishized the foreigner thing. Yeah, yeah, We yeah, fetishize yeah. foreigners in a way. Like yeah. years ago when I was a kid, people go, "There's a busload of Frenchies after coming into town." Well, I suppose in Tehran they might be going, "There's a European in the middle of town." <laughs> So all the gays would just... Who So I used to get propositioned a lot. But I also, I met loads of... I met the most amazing people. And they have a great connection with Irish culture, which I found very interesting over there. Like, they've, they've got the most ridiculous sense of humour as well. Like, the, 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 the British Embassy in Tehran was on this street. And they changed the name of the street that the, the British Embassy was on to Bobby Sand Street, just to piss <laughs> off the British people. Because oh, <laughs> the British people would have to say, the British Embassy, Bobby Sand Street, Tehran... <laughs> <laughs> so what the British did was they closed their front door and opened their back door and pretended that their back door was their, their address side of their building. But anyway, but also I met people, I met a man there who, who himself and his wife were quietly on their own, inside in their own flat, translating Ulysses into Farsi. You know, like there was, there was all kinds of connections and they, they felt as if we were a fighting nation or something. Yeah. Like, I think they were terribly disappointed in me who was going, well, we kind of made peace and all that, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> keep fighting! <laughs> but... Um, but I, I, it was it was it was one of the most amazing adventures I ever had. Just kind of losing yourself and wandering, 
through the middle of... Um, but, but you did find the gays, right? I did find the gays. There were loads of them. And I, there was loads <laughs> of them. And, and also, it was interesting discussing with them what they thought their gayness was or what their gay identity was. Yeah. And for a lot of them, because officially the, the revolutionary government has executed 4,000 men for homosexuality. I think it's all men uh, since the revolution happened in 79. So I would have thought that there was a degree of fear around, and there is a degree of fear around, and yet life in Iran is spent, from what I could observe, is it's very free within the home. Like people's homes are, are open and free. And outside, you know, they cover up, the women cover up, and, and they don't discuss politics and they won't discuss anything like that. Whereas within the, the realm of the home, it's it's exactly like I would know my own home to be. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that divide between the public and the private is there. And so the gays buy into that, I think. But mm. for instance, I remember just talking to people and they, I go, would, if you met somebody, would you ever move in with them? And some of them looked pained when I said it. And, and I said, you know, well, what do you think would happen? They said, well, if I met somebody, we'd leave Iran. Mm. And I always thought that was really sad. But I imagine that's what the gays did in Ireland years ago. But, yeah. but I, I found it... It must be a terrible wrench for them, you know. Well, my observation about those strictly matric cultures in that way, um, like when I used to live in, in Tokyo, there was a large Iranian population there. And um, they were really the only large you know, immigrant population. And they would gather on Sundays in this park and they, you know, cut hair and, you know, you know, make food and all that sort of stuff. They would never go to a gay bar or do anything gay per se, but they would look for sexual interactions with the, you know, the most feminine guys that they could find because they separated sex from sexuality in that sense, or sex from, you know, some, you know, identity. There was a bit of that. Now, there was one thing that I was interested in. I was interested in talking about or trying to find out what would be, like, I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I've never been to university, so it's not a sociological experiment in any way, but I was trying to figure out, like, where does homophobia come from? Yeah. And... From what I could see in cultures like the Iranian culture, blah, 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 that homophobia and misogyny are the same thing, Mm. that they are a disgust at the feminine. Mm. So for gays in Iran, being effeminate is really scary because Mm. there's a hatred of effeminacy. Yeah. Whereas if you're a big macho gay, (laughs) you can exist and you're fine. And I found that I found that really interesting and really telling, actually. And I, I think, think misogyny and homophobia are the same thing. And they're the same thing everywhere. It's not yes. just there. I mean, but I think that's the same, you know, here. It's just it's not as, you know, as thrown into such relief here. But yeah. I think, you know, it's much easier here to be, you know, a yeah. butch gay than it is to be, you know, a famey one. Well, that's for sure. I mean, I know that myself because <laughs> yeah. I'm so I, butch. I, I, <laughs> I, I know the listeners can't see this, but I, I just need to maybe to explain to the audience who are you know, here and why Mark has this insane beard at the moment. So Mark is sitting there wearing this big bushy beard, which has been dyed orange. And you're walking around out in public with, with an orange beard all the time. Yeah. So do you, why don't you explain to them why? Well, I co-wrote this film that's filming at the moment and I play uh, an Irish Muslim convert called Omar Omara in it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he's gone the whole hog, as they'd say. Yeah. He's a halal butcher and uh, he's been on the hedge last year. And to mark the hedge, he dyed the old beard orange just for the hell of it. Because it is a tradition in certain strands of Islam that they would dye their beard, uh, they'd henna their beard okay. uh, afterwards. So... I thought it was hilarious when I thought about it, but then I've had four weeks of watching it. <laughs> and it, you get the strangest looks. And I keep forgetting that it's attached to my face. So I get up in the morning, I'll be like, rah, rah, rah. oh, Jesus, when I look at it. <laughs> uh, but in the, in the film, he's working in a halal factory here in, in, in a small yeah. town in Ireland. Yeah, so, so what happens is a young 
British <clears throat> Muslim boy who's of Indian extraction actually comes over to live with his uncle who's married to an Irish woman and his father comes back into his life on his 21st birthday to make amends because they have a broken relationship sort of and he's bought him an abattoir and he wants his son to set up a halal abattoir in Sligo <laughs> and there's a sort of a culture clash goes on and there's a bit of um, fun that goes on but it's a the, the film is kind of looking at a kind of a, a culture in small towns in Ireland now. There are there are kids growing up in their teens now who are the kids of immigrants, but they're Irish. But they, you know, their parents yeah. might be from Nigeria or from Poland or yeah. from, and they're all hanging around in Irish small towns. And I wanted to look at them and see yeah. see what the crack they are having. There's surfing in it, and there's smoking dope, and there's discos and yeah. music. And you know, you know. well, the, the film rings you know true to me because of course my father was a vet. And um, like a lot of vets, as he got older and was sort of retiring, um, he only semi-retired. And what he, he would then work in, in a meat factory for a few hours every day, you know, inspecting meat, a meat inspector, because they need vets to do that. So a lot of older vets do that. And of course, my dad was working in the Halal factory in Ballyhonis. Ballyhonis you know, is very famous. Yes. For- and so like, I always remember my dad sort of being very pensive one evening coming up towards Christmas. And, he, and then he goes, what do you get a Mohammedan for Christmas? <laughs> I just thought this That's is one this of those eternal perfect. questions. Yeah, it's just like what a brilliant question. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 um, Maria, you and Kieran yeah. um, spent half your time now here in Ireland, or roughly half, yeah. and half the time in Canada. Yeah. Um, how's that working out? Well, unfortunately, we're always there in the winter, so it's always absolutely perishing, which is a small bit sad. But it's interesting. It's been very interesting. Um, I started working on a TV show there and for the first couple of seasons I just travelled over and back from Ireland Mm -hmm. and um, I just began to be kind of no good anywhere. I was just constantly catching up on the time in one place or coming back and catching up in the other and then we decided we'd all go over and give it a go. So we all went over. We did it two years ago for the first time Mm -hmm. and then we did it again last year and we're going to go again for one more and when you say we all, you take all four kids and everything. The younger two who are still in school. Okay. Yeah, the older two are cooked, so they got they, <laughs> yeah. they do their own thing. And they're happy in but, school there, and yeah, I mean it's uh, it, it's been really interesting for them, I think, um, especially our youngest son goes to a Gael school here in Dublin, mm-hmm. which was an incredible school, and it's quite academic. He really yeah. learns a lot. He's really you know powering ahead. But because of the language, because of Gaelga, it's not a language that many immigrants want to learn, yeah. I think. So it's a reasonably homogenous, you know, group of children in his yeah. class. And in his school in Canada, it's such a multicultural city. Yeah. It's so diverse. Uh, his class, I mean, literally looks like, you know, the UN. It's, he's got <laughs> classmates from Chile, from India, from Poland some just regular Canadians. There's, yeah. I mean, there's a really big and interesting mix of, of children. And he, you know, from the age of, I guess, seven, the first year, he kind of just got this, he, there's good guys and there's bad guys. And it has nothing to do with their accent or the color of yeah. their skin. And it's not that you learn, you like, you just kind of osmose that from being mm. in such a diverse environment. So I, I don't know, I think if you get that at that age, it's yeah. kind of, you're kind of set up, really, aren't you? Well, Canada, I mean, I've been there quite a few times and um, it's almost annoyingly perfect. You know what I mean? <laughs> like sometimes I, I sort of wonder, is there a really dark undercurrent hidden here somewhere? <laughs> you know, because they're so good at integrating different communities. They're so 
open and fair-minded and you know and now yeah. they have you know trudeau the you know the saint as yeah as prime minister and the all gorgeous that. one yeah it, it it almost makes me suspicious you know that, that, know, that the I next know. nazi you know thing is going to come out of canada or something you well, know they do sometimes just have this kind of knee-jerk reaction to this constant representation of fairness and you do sort of feel like just causing a bit of trouble yeah <laughs> you know but um i don't know it's 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 kind of it is remarkable it well is remarkable. i was in um halifax nova scotia doing a speaking thing of course the canadians are all so lovely and so of course they wanted to show me more of nova scotia you know they didn't want me to just see the the slightly grim town you know so so they drove we drove out into the country and it's beautiful and it's these lakes and they're all half frozen over and we drove into this village and it was like the you know nova scotian version of like tourmakidi or foxford somewhere in one of those you know tiny really pretty village and 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 it had this cafe in in the center which clearly was there to maybe trap a few tourists as they were driving by as well. You know, so this was a very nice little cafe. And, and But the cafe was both a working bookshop slash library and cafe. Mm-hmm. So when you were having your, you know, your slice of cake and your coffee, you're sitting at, you know, at a little table and you're surrounded by all the shelves of books and everything. And I look up and I realize that we are sitting in front of the section on lesbian health. Wow. And I'm just like... This is a tiny village in the middle of nowhere, and their local bookstore has a whole section on lesbian health. Kieran, <laughs> has living in Canada changed how you think about Ireland? Jeepers. Well, living in Canada certainly, it's very open-minded. I mean, yeah. I grew up in Cork, you know, in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I haven't said anything yeah. bad about Cork yet. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a minute. I just said I grew up there, you know, and that wasn't the most open-minded in the 70s, you know. Yeah. It was well, quite, Northern Ireland uh, was. Yeah, I mean, most of Ireland was, yeah. Mm. So, like, to be living in Canada is like a breath of fresh air. Uh, has it changed my mind about Ireland? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Is the answer to that. Well, because I, I often think sometimes when we're here, we complain all the time. And, and we have a lot of things to complain about. You know, we have a lot of things to complain about and we ought to be complaining. But sometimes you can get so caught up in that. You know, Irish people don't ever want to say anything good about Ireland unless it's about, you know, the, the, the football fans or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can get so caught up into believing that every single politician only wants to destroy the country and steal everything, you know, whatever. And then sometimes I think when you go abroad and you look back, it gives you a bit of distance and you start to miss things or, yeah, sure. or you start to realize things that actually that there's a few things that we do right. Yeah. And, and so I, I've always found that the more I'm away, the more I appreciate the things that we do do right. Even just uh, culturally, I, I noticed, I mean, obviously, it's just anecdotal and it's a massive generalization, but we do seem to have a natural gene for gathering. You know, mm. we gather people together and we like to eat together or drink together or tell stories or sing songs. And all of our friends in Canada keep saying, please come back because none of us are seeing each other because you're not <laughs> yeah. here to make us all meet and go out and those yeah. kind of things. And I do find that Irish people tend to do that. We like to mm. gather, don't we? We like yeah, to we do, yeah. yeah, we like to hang out in groups. And that's a really positive cultural thing, I think, that I noticed being, being yeah. there. I had a Canadian boyfriend for a while, but we never had good, proper arguments. Oh, yeah. like, I'd love a good row where you shout and be irrational and throw something, but no, never happens. It's all too calm. 
So, give him the heave hole. <laughs> yeah, but you have hermit tendencies, Mark. I do. I am herm, herm, hermetic. Is that right? No. Well, well let's go with that, even though yeah. I think that means sealed. I do, like, I do like to... Well, I like to be observer. I like to watch people. Yeah. Um, but I do like when I'm going out with somebody, I like a good old row. <laughs> yeah. No, that's very healthy, I think. Well, I think you probably have to be thing. an observer slightly. To be a really good writer, to I suspect. To be a suspect, writer, you have to be. You have to or at least be you have away. to be comfortable being alone. Yeah, I think so, because your work is always going to be alone, or for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be alone. I mean, it's why I keep going back to acting, is that you suddenly get so tired of being on your own that you go, I just want to hang out in a room with people. Um, and w- but when I'm writing, I really can't be around other people. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I, I think of surfers as being, a, you know, we're all sitting around the campfire, you know, kumbaya vibe about it. <laughs> Essentially, you're out on a board in the middle of nowhere on your own. Yeah, it, it's such a soloist pursuit. It strips away all that other stuff that you might carry around on land, and it's mm-hmm. just very much about you and the element you're in, yeah. yeah, in the ocean. Like, I'm an absolute water baby. You know, I'll spend all my time in the sea and in water. I absolutely love it. I'm not that particularly interested in surfing and all that because I was thinking it just gets, you know, I want to be a mermaid. I don't want to be you know, on, top of, yeah. on top of a board or whatever, you know. But even I, who loves the ocean and I love the sea and I love swimming, you know, every now and then you're, you're, if you swim out far and there's that moment where you suddenly realize how alone you are and, and then you think, think of Jaws. Do you sit out on your board and sometimes think, oh God, me, you know, where are my feet? <laughs> that edge to it uh, no I don't think so I think it's one of the advantages of being uh, an Irish surfer to be honest because um, there's nothing scary in our waters well let's not dig too deep there but uh, <laughs> <laughs> swallowed by a basking shark yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, but I totally understand and appreciate it. The the how we it doesn't you don't have to be surfing, but just being near the sea, the impact yeah. that it can have. It's yeah, so positive. But doesn't it speak to our poet soul though? So as well as being social, we really like Schamburgen. I don't think yeah. any other country thinks about their nationality as much as we do. And I think it's perhaps because our republicanism is so wrapped up in that nationality and so Irishness was so well defined in the 19th century yes. that you had to subscribe to that 100%. Yeah. Otherwise, you were the other. You were basically the British. And everything that wasn't Irish was therefore British. And the distinction needed to be made. Yeah. And so, you know, it's I, I find it very, very interesting because certainly what I do does not fit into the Irishness uh, as well. Well, I was about to come to you because... You know, I think there's this sort of lazy idea of scientists as being these sort of loners who work away in a room, you know, poking at numbers or whatever it is you guys do. You know, yes, and, 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 and that it, it, it's presented <laughs> us as this solitary, almost autistic pursuit, if I can put it that way. No, absolutely. It's fair. But yet science is perhaps the most incredible social experiment that humanity mm. has ever done. And I don't mean to put it in contest with other things that we have done but it's incredibly successful what science as a process has achieved and Mm. that humans have done this science isn't something that's just always existed science is something that humans have made and so the fact that we're able to do that they're able to see the world conceptualize the world to control the world and to control ourselves and think about ourselves is absolutely incredible Mm. but yeah you do need to go off and think you know and and that that involves being on your own and Which of us doesn't want to do that every so often? We, we spend our lives just like chasing spare time. Mm. Um, like we, we, we say, like, I'll go out into the garden, I'll go surfing, I'll read a book, I'll escape. I want to go away. Yeah. And it's like away from all the, the day to day stuff. So mm. I'm really lucky in the job that I do as a scientist and as a teacher that I get to spend time thinking. 
It's mm. wonderful. I, I guess you, you certainly do it too, I'm sure, yeah. when you're out in your surfboard. Well, it's funny when you say like we, we want to go away and it's when we go away that we realise we're right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're really present. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I've never had a good idea in front of my computer, ever. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've never Neither taken the Mark. next step, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess for me, it's walking the dog. You know, that's when I'm, I'm zoned out entirely. Well, walking is a really good walking creative really, process. I agree. Because yeah. your conscious brain is too busy working your legs to get involved. And so ideas pop up yeah. mm-hmm. constantly. Yeah. Actually, that happens all the time when I'm sitting on my surfboard waiting for a wave as well. Mm. Just, yeah. Yeah. Well, the creative process <laughs> is just weird, you know, because what I do is I let it percolate, stress out about what I'm meant to be doing and don't do it. And then I get into bed the night before to consciously think about it. Really? And I just think about it as I'm, you know, on the pillow and drifting off to sleep. And in the morning, it'll all be there. Well, wow. Wow. Well, so far, so good. Look at you. Is pantistocracy a real word? Pantistocracy is, yeah, I wasn't lying. It's an absolutely a real word. It's a form of government or way of organizing society in which every member is entirely equal. equal. Fantastic. So, yes, totally real word. Brilliant. Speaking of real words, let's <laughs> sing some. Okay. Yeah. Maria and Kieran are going to um, sing for us. What are, we, what are you going to sing for us, Maria? We're going to sing a song called The Most Beautiful People Are Broken. The Most Beautiful mm-hmm. People Are Broken, which is from your album Sing. Yeah. Yes. Are, are you guys doing a new album soon? Yeah, we're about halfway through. Mm. We're yeah. lying on the pillow writing it every night. <laughs> yeah, well, I God, I might And you just still do haven't that. killed each other. Yeah, I might just do that tonight. Yeah, just... <laughs> Just think about it all as they're drifting off and then wake up and then it'll be done tomorrow. That'd be <laughs> awesome. spent a long time digging in the dark you'd want to be sure of a spark if you're gonna wake up with the sound of your own voice ringing in your ear you'd want to start making a sound that you'd like to hear People are broken and bound Disappointment is not a stranger end Pain is not a shroud If you're gonna wake up with the sound of your own voice Ringing in your ear You'd want to start making a sound that you like to hear
if you're going out digging for diamonds you need to be sure you know what you're going to do once you find them and if you're going to wake up with the sound of your own voice ringing in your ears you'd want to start making a sound that you like to As a child, Shane Bergen wanted to be an inventor or a baker. He remembers making things with his grandfather, who was a mechanic, and baking and singing with his grandmother. As a scientist and teacher, he's won a host of international awards for his innovative approach to communicating complex ideas, like his project The Dart of Physics. His latest project, Quaver's Quadratics, gets primary school children playing with both music and science. Shane just jumped ship from Trinity College Dublin to University College Dublin, where he takes up the post of Assistant Professor of Science Education. <laughs> Shane, you would say pretty strongly, I think, that this sort of left brain, right brain thing is an arbitrary distinction or it's not really real. And while I might think of Maria here as being, you know, an artistic, a disorganized hippie, um, <laughs> you would say that I'm projecting in a sense, and that you can be creative and a mathematical genius. Yeah, why totally limit entirely. yourself? Why be one and not the other? Yes, well, obviously both? there are famous ones like Leonardo da Vinci or whatever. Um, but I think it is something that we've grown up to sort of to think in, in a dichotomy like that. Yeah, and there's, there's millions of famous ones, billions in fact. I'd say every child is both, right? Yeah. So uh, how do we unlearn that? Uh, what happens in our societies that yeah. we have to choose and why do we have to choose? It's still this Victorian idea of education that you must pick a path and then stay on it and then yeah. identify with that for the rest of your life. So, yeah, I'd say the very same traits that give Maria her amazing musical ability, that creativity, that passion, that flair, the ability to connect with people emotionally, mm. to think. I'm sure you think so much when you're 
uh, connecting with your audience, they're the same attributes of a great scientist or a great writer or yeah. a great surfer or a great actor <clears throat> or a great presenter, right? It's the same sort of, it's a human passion that just mm. allows us to do what we do. And so science is not other. Science is not that left brain expression yeah. of just uh, black and white, right or wrong. Mm. It too is flawed and is, is human and therefore it's beautiful. And, yeah. and not, not allowing us and not allowing uh, particularly our children in schools to practice science as opposed to hearing about science then closes it off to society. Yeah. Well, of course, I, I'm calling myself Dr. Bliss all day today because there's a couple <laughs> of PhDs in, in this room because Iski, you're a scientist too. Um, you know, is that how people think of themselves? Yeah, they, because they've been taught to think of themselves that way. Yeah, I guess we adhere to the system we work in, right? But yeah. like, so for instance, I'm doing a program in the concert hall. It's yeah. called Quavers to Quadratics. And the children mm. come in and they learn about what sound is and why musical instruments are, the shape they are, why they're made from certain materials. And then at the end of it, they get to build musical instruments. Yeah. And it's amazing that last piece, you need no instruction for any nine-year-olds to be creative. You just say, here's like all the recycled gear that I found in my house at home for the last like week. What do you want to make? And they do amazing things. Isn't there a traditional thing about a link between music and mathematics? Yes. Yes, well, there must be. Symmetries and patterns and things like that. But of course, you can find mathematics in everything, right? I mean, like wave formation and and all of that stuff. I mean, do you actually have to understand that to be a good surfer? In part, it's intuitive, um, but also there's a real scientific understanding of it. You have to be, as a surfer, you're not just a sort of surfer hippie Mm. bum, um, (laughs) but you're also part meteorologist. And you're able to read these weather patterns. Yeah. And then you're also, it's, you're, you're an artist, you're yeah. essentially water dancing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yes, and you're also like a mathematician because you're calculating the speed of the wave and your own mm. speed. And yeah, there's all these elements in it. And when you were in school, there would never have been, right, you're going to like, what, what do you, I want to major in surfing, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And, and we all laugh, but like, why couldn't you? That's what yeah. you've become. That's who yeah. you are. So what, why can't an education system better facilitate a young Eski to be the person mm. she wants? Be. And I know that sounds very highfalutin, but really, that's that's not an impossible dream. No, yeah, just to recognize that there's merit in it. Yeah. And I was always told you had to like focus. You know, focus meant then you had to sort of stop doing all that other stuff, which was the mm. surf, the art, yes. the play. The, you know, put your head down. You know, and get to work. I, if I didn't surf, there's no way I'd be sitting here where I am now with all the other things yeah. I've done. You yeah. know yeah. what I mean? But I also <laughs> have a healthy respect for discipline and being yeah. organized as yeah. well. And I don't think that I would be able to manage my life without that I like yeah. the creative things that allow you to think of the beginnings of writing a song for example um you'll never end up with the song made or you'll never as mm-hmm. we do we run our own record label mm. we'd never do that without also having the ability to you know write lists and organize yeah. our time and do other things so that we can get the spark of creation into something yeah. real and, and tangible so mm. of course you you get to do both. And Irish yeah. people, I think, are actually pretty good at this. And this is this is one thing I think that does make us special. I noticed that living abroad, too, is that we have this ability to spread beyond our expertise enough so that we can link hands with others. Because right? we're so, chancers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and we admire chancers. Like, I don't know how things have changed now, but certainly when I was in secondary school, you know, you, you were put into one of four classes, depending on how intelligent they thought you were. And in my school, if you were put into the top two classes, you weren't allowed to do art. They didn't put a space for art in the curriculum for you. But what you could do is technical drawing. Right. So boys that they considered not so book smart were allowed to do art. Wow. But people who were considered smart had to do technical drawing. And for whatever 
drugs they were on, they thought I was smart. And so I wasn't allowed to do art. So in order to do art, I had to do it on my own outside of class time. And I took the Leaving Cert art exam entirely alone in an exam hall wow. because I was the only student. Wow. Well, because, sorry, I, I forgot to mention, after the intercert, they dropped art altogether. Oh, wow. Well. Mm. So even after the intercert, it didn't matter what class you were in, you couldn't do art. I got an it NG had no respect. in the intercertificate technical drawing. <laughs> I actually got NG, and what was worse is, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Is there such a thing as, you know, people say, well, I'm not a good at maths. My brain isn't a maths brain. Do you think that's... A, no, that I don't buy that for a minute okay. because you, I don't think that great mathematicians are, are necessarily born. I think that you have to have something called a growth mindset, which is a, an educational jargon, but it means that you're basically willing and open to learn. So in our Western culture, we continuously say subconsciously that girls are not so good at maths, which is rubbish. And in some uh, Southeast Asian societies, they tell girls they're good at maths and therefore they are. I've never met anyone who doesn't like learning. And I've had this idea for ages to follow people when they're learning new things, right? And mm -hmm. see what happens because the process of knowing how we learn is really not straightforward. So all the different disciplines in yeah. academia, mm -hmm. and I don't just say science, they all disagree with each other about how we learn. And it's yet such a fundamental human thing about mm -hmm. us, our, our thirst to do new things and to master them. Well, I think everybody looks back in the school days and you remember two teachers the yeah. one who was an absolute horror and the one who was nice and encouraging And to I have you. both of them in my head. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, actually, because you and the one that you really fancied as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the visiting biology teacher. Um, <laughs> the idea that we're talking about different kinds of learning and intelligence, though, is really mm. a progress, isn't it? The mm. fact that we now have some awareness of the idea or respect for or value for emotional intelligence. Yes, yeah. is, You know, that's we're moving in the right direction, I think, thinking that we learn and appreciate things in a different way. Well, it might bring us back to what Panty was saying at the start about our sense of Irishness is that if, if in order for us to live in a democratic society, we have to continuously question who we are and mm. what our values are and not just accept what other people tell us. Because we lived in a society where we just for years accepted what, what like the, the church, let's say it, uh, told us. And so we then began to be able to question ourselves. Mm. And so that's so important all the time. We see the, the, the effects of that in Britain over the last couple of weeks and months about their decision and living yeah. with that. And mm -hmm. did yeah. they make the best decision? Were they informed and they made the decision? And education is so crucial to that. And it's not just the education school. Mm. I agree what you're saying about the like this learning process and that's part of the attraction to surfing and why it lends itself so well to it. I think like self-exploration mm. is because you're constantly learning. The environment's always changing. There's like no two waves are the same. Yeah. And it's really unpredictable and you're having to like respond in like split seconds. Mm. And I think, you know, for my dad who's a surfer and has been his whole life. But yeah, it does lend itself to this, uh, I don't know, that, that constant sense of joy and being young of mind and this like neuroplasticity. Yeah. And, and failing, I'm sure, like it, you oh fall off your board. Oh my God, you fail so many way yeah. more times than you <laughs> succeed and you don't have any control over it. So you have to almost surrender to, to it, you know, and, and uh, yeah. And it's also combining keeping active and mentally alert with the whole thing about the sea, which is... Well, which is something I think every human understands, you know, what being by the sea is and all that. But it all strikes me that Ireland, as a small island nation, 
doesn't make more of that or hasn't made more of that. Yeah, we have a huge marine resource. There are great people in uh, along the universities in the West Coast, in Limerick and in, in Galway and in Cork that I've spoken to who are doing wonderful work on the marine. And I th- it's really interesting, like more of Ireland is water than is land. Yeah, I know it's not very useful to any of us that are not you, you ski like <laughs> <laughs> That are not. I just wonder what the You know, the mermaid version of you, Panty. Yes, so you enjoy right, it. Yeah. <laughs> I think... Someone like Iski, you're a woman in a world that women weren't necessarily expected to be in. You've challenged something about it. Do, do, you, do you feel it that way? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it becomes obvious at moments when, especially wintertime in Ireland, a big wave surfing especially is starting to become a thing at spots like Aliens and Mullochmore. And, mm. um, and I'm the, the only woman to have ever surfed those spots yeah but i guess because i've grown up with it too i just feel a part of that that crew mm-hmm. and but it isn't until you you do get really subtle comments it's always your gender is always made a point of yeah. if you're a woman mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. even if it's in it framed in a positive way yeah. and then obviously going somewhere like iran and you're mixing i didn't really appreciate it at the time until afterwards how mm. people responded but you have combining what a woman being covered surfing in Iran, you just turn all the stereotypes yep. on their head. You're like, yep. um, you know, challenging the image of what it is, what what a surfer girl should look like. Yep. And I mean, I bring it up because it might come as some surprise to you, but I'm interested in gender things. <laughs> and because, <laughs> and, and Maria, I've heard you speak about it before, Yeah. how you feel, you know, women are expected to be or present themselves in the entertainment industry. Well, there's a couple of things that I noticed. I mean, I never experienced any really bad sort of sexism directed against me. But a few things that would happen to me that didn't happen to Kieran or to the other members of our band. Or one thing was if I was particular about something, like even in a sound check, if Kieran and it has been known to happen, would be particular about something, people would say that he's kind of a perfectionist or, you know, really cares about it so much. He's so passionate about sound. Mm -hmm. If I would complain during a sound check, very quickly I would feel, and I would hear people go, what a fucking bitch. You know, (laughs) she's such a diva or drama queen or whatever. And the other thing I've noticed as I get older in interviews that people always ask me my age. What is you? Yeah, uh, I am 51 and proud of it. And I am I'm totally embracing it and I, do, I don't have a problem, but I just, I did notice that I was always asked yeah. and the guys were not. Yeah, um, so men always get asked about the rage though, because I've heard you say that before, yeah. and so I watched out and older men always get asked their age, always. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and because I bring this up, you know, as well, because something about Mark's work, Adam and Paul is what you're probably in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, so well known for, which is, you know, a relationship about men and mm-hmm. between men. Viva, which is the incredible movie um, that's mm-hmm. out at the moment, is a deep relationship between a father and his son. Halal Daddy, the one who that you're sporting the ridiculous beard for, is also about a, a relationship in some ways between a father and I'm his son. Like suggesting I have daddy issues. I'm suggesting that you have daddy issues. And, you know, um, the, the incredible play you, uh, you wrote, Trade, which is also becoming a movie, which is actually a, a relationship about a, you know, a rent boy and his older male client. But even that has this sort of... So Aeon says, yes, you have daddy issues. <laughs> or at least you have male issues. Well, I'm always interested, I think, in the way that men talk to each other or don't talk to each other. You mm. know, I think that men sometimes, I mean, these are generalizations, but men sometimes find it more difficult to be open about themselves or yep. to discuss tricky emotional issues between each other. And I'm mm. interested in that. I'm interested in when between two people where where words fall away, but the need to communicate 
remains. Yeah. And I think that men are well able to that. You see, you can see two men in a bar anywhere in Ireland sitting at a bar and then saying something very small, mm-hmm. like, I see they cut down the tree there across the road. Oh, did they? They did. That's the end of the conversation. <laughs> but you know that, like, if you're sitting there like them, you go, Jesus, what an amazing dialogue. Because they're... they're <laughs> You feel that it's communication at some, yeah, yeah. that there's some communication a at a time. different level or something. And I really like watching that and writing about that. Yeah. But I think that I have to get over my daddy issues <laughs> and move on to my mammy issues. But I, I I'm, I'm think I'm moving into a, a, a time now where I want to write about women more than I've written about men. Write about drag queens. I am I have actually drag a, a drag queen trapped in a woman's body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, my, my gender your identity. That's, That's my, your my identity issue. Yeah. For everything. I know scientists certainly have a, a uniform. And yeah. I, I've never done a media thing where someone, like on TV, someone says, where's your white coat? And I'm a physicist, so I don't wear a white coat. And the idea that a, a woman scientist is sort of abnormal always as well. And it's, yeah. it's, 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 unfortunately, it's based on reality that we, we have far too few women in science well, I get it all the time being, being a woman as well and everyone just thinks you're you know a perpetual student or you're an assistant at a conference or mm. rather than the keynote um, and they're definitely not wearing a typical science uniform right yeah. now <laughs> maybe that's something to do with it but yeah it's, it's you strange. need a t-shirt I'm the keynote um, bitch <laughs> anyway we could be here all night we're all right. so Shane you're going to finish up for us by bringing um, your other passion out of the shadows for us, he's, he's a, a ukulele player. Fantastic. So, Kieran, if you are looking ever for a little a ukulele looking, um, they haven't on heard something. me yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because you're actually part of a sort of little um, you know, science geeks play ukuleles together, right? Yeah, on many <laughs> levels. So, um, uh, with some of my colleagues, we have a, a physics ukulele band. And we're, yeah, cue laughter. So <laughs> it's, it's called the normal modes, which is which put, is a physics yeah, it's a physics joke. joke yeah, exactly. yeah. It's a little bit big bangish, I suppose. Is the big bang theory big with you people? No, it, well, not with me. <laughs> you people, thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I, I, I think the problem for me with the big bang is that everyone's laughing at the scientists and never laughing with the scientists as well. I just had massive problems with that show. Still do. God, you scientists are so. <laughs> I sing the song, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're going to get out the ukulele, and what's the song you're going to do first? Well, I'm going to do the Galaxy song, and it's a song I sing with primary school children in the concert hall, and it's about our amazing galaxy, the Monty Python song. And just remember when I'm singing this that we're all made of stuff of the galaxy. We're all made from stardust, and that always connects with me in an emotion on an emotional level. The stuff that you and I are made from came from the death of an exploding star in space. Which is both fabulous and sort of morbid. <laughs> yeah, because it, yeah. yeah, exactly, absolutely. But That's more fabulous than morbid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to focus on the fabulous. And so please be warm and welcoming one of the main members of the Normal Modes, Mr. Shane Bergen. Yay! <laughs> Let's give it a shot anyway. Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving, revolving at 900 miles an hour. That's orbiting at 19 miles a second, so it's reckoned the sun that is the source of all our power. So remember when you're feeling very small and insecure, how amazingly unlikely is your birth? 
And pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space Cause there's very little down here on the earth yeah. <laughs> If the science doesn't work out, there's a dream show business Thank you so much for joining us tonight at Pantasocracy. Thanks to all my guests. That's it, Kieran, Maria, Eski, Mark, and Shane. And thanks, Shane, for playing us out there on our ukulele. Um, next week, we'll be back. And amongst others, we have the formidable Alwyn Fiore and Jack Lutman among our guests. Um, you can, of course, find us online. You can catch the podcast on rte.ie. And, of course, please do talk back to us on social media using the hashtag Pantasocracy, which is spelled like it sounds. And of course, you can find me on Twitter at PantyBlitz. So, thank you so much. Good night. Woo!